uh, God's Word, the Scriptures, and turn to Matthew chapter 16. We remember this is a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. Here in this chapter, for the first time, Jesus begins to speak about his necessary suffering and death. But now, from that point, he begins to speak about a cross that his own disciples must bear. As you're turning there, I want to begin with a very uh, simple statement, and that is every person, every human life uh, is centered around something or around someone. Uh, Every life is formed around something or someone. And throughout Matthew's gospel, these early disciples and every reader of this gospel, the gospel of Matthew throughout history, comes to learn that the greatest person to occupy the center of a person's life is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That the Christ-centered life is the greatest life. Well, what is a Christ-centered life? That's exactly what we have been learning through the whole of this gospel. What is a Christ-centered life? Well, it begins in the early chapters of this gospel when we learned about the Magi traveling a great distance to go and worship uh, the Lord Jesus, offering gifts. A Christ-centered life is a, a life fueled by worship. And that's what we saw in the early chapters. Uh, we saw that a Christ-centered life is also one that is oriented around the Word of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. This is a person who sits and feeds upon the teachings and the words of the Lord Jesus. We have seen that a Christ-centered life is one being restored. So we saw in chapters 8 and 9, as we uh, saw the hand of Christ heal and restore people. And Christians are people who are being restored and healed, healed in our thinking and psyche. At times we could even say in our uh, bodies. A Christ-centered life is also one on mission for the Lord Jesus there in chapter 10. So a person who comes to faith in Christ joins the local and the global mission that Jesus has. We saw in chapter 11 that a Christ-centered life is one at rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And we saw that a person who puts Christ at the center of their life gains a new family. I will build my church. Jesus begins to speak of his community, his family. Uh, We may not always like his family, but he loves his family to the point that he gave his life. And so as uh, as we love him, we come to love and enjoy his family and his people. And here in chapter 16, I think Jesus is getting to the very heart of what a Christ centered life is all about. Verses 24 to 28, five verses. And not only does he get to the heart of the Christian faith, but he corrects one of the great misconceptions about Christianity. And that misconception is that the Christian faith is merely about something that God in Christ has done for us. Well, that is true. But it goes beyond that. It is not only something God has done for us. It is something that God is working in us. It is a life transformation in in every way. And we'll see that in this text. So Matthew 16, verses 24 to 28. Listen now to God's word. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, 
but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's important for us to see the larger context that we do well to remember this paragraph, these five verses, um, immediately followed Jesus' words about his own death and resurrection. That the disciples' necessary cross-bearing, the losing of their life in order to gain life, comes immediately following our Lord's words about his own death and resurrection. So his necessary suffering and death and resurrection precede and they pave the way for the disciples' death and newness of life. And so we read just in the previous passage in verse 21 that Jesus began to show he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, and on the third day rise again. The the relationship between those verses on the death and resurrection of Christ and and the death or cross-bearing and newness of life of the disciples speaks directly into the heart of the Christian faith. That the Christian faith is not only about what God and Jesus Christ has done for us, displayed here at the Lord's Supper, but it is a life, something He is working in us. That cross actually becomes the paradigm, the pattern for our entire way of living. Indeed, Christ has done a work for his people. That is the foundation of our our faith. Romans chapter 5, we are justified freely by his grace. We do not contribute to our justification. It is declared. It is a work done for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. But it does not end there. It begins there. That's where it begins. Now, the cross upon which Christ bore our sin becomes uh, the very way of my life. And so our text spells out very clearly the cost of discipleship. Uh, Yes, indeed, there is a crown. But the cross comes before the crown. Uh, There is glory to, to come. But before glory is suffering. There's everything to gain, a life uh, that is to be gained, Jesus speaks of, but that gain comes through pain. And this is one of the reasons Paul, on multiple occasions, uses the metaphor of the athlete. Pain comes before gain. You heard mention at the outside of our service that tonight is an athletic contest. It's the Super Bowl. Now, whether you're a sports fan or not, millions of people will be tuning in. And what they will be seeing are not only athletes competing hard for a prize. They want to win. And not only athletes with a tremendous set of gifts, but people will be witnessing athletes whose discipline has brought them to this stage. 
Now, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. Don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control or discipline in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. And the word for wreath there is crown, the leafy crown, perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable wreath or crown. Yes, there's a glorious crown to come, but it comes through the cross. And it is actually obtained by something much greater than discipline. It is actually obtained through death. Death to the self. What a paradox that Jesus gives us in verse 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus is holding out a life to be found. But it is found through this death. And so I wanna, want us to see sim- two simple things. What is this cross-centered life in verse 24 that Jesus speaks of and describes? We might call it a cruciformed life. One that is defined by the cross. What is this costly discipleship? And two, the clear reasons that Jesus gives for counting that cost and living in this way. So look at verse 24. Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, take up his cross, and follow me. John Calvin translated and explained the verse this way. He said, If anyone wishes to be mine... When he has denied himself and taken up his cross, let him follow me or conform to my example. In other words, the the condition or characteristic of a follower is one who denies self and bears his cross. Calvin says the plain meaning is that none can be a disciple of Christ unless they are true imitators of him and willing to pursue the same course. He identifies two points or aspects that mark this course. Self-denial and cross-bearing. Now, I think it is critical we understand that these are not the conditions, these are not the prerequisites for coming into life in Jesus Christ. These are the characteristics of a person who has life in Jesus Christ. Self-denial and cross-bearing. So what is this self-denial that Jesus addresses? Well, one cannot imagine denying the self right, unless they first recognize they have a self to deny. You cannot first deny yourself until you recognize you have a self to deny. What does it mean to deny oneself? Certainly doesn't mean to deny that we are image bearers of God or to deny that we have great worth as God's creation, certainly as God's people redeemed by his grace. And so what is this self that we are to deny? I think uh, the author Ernest Best's words help. 
He says it's not the denial of something to the self. It is the denial of the self itself. It's not merely denying something to the self. It is the denial of the self itself. So this is not merely a life of discipline or a set of ascetic practices that we carry out as Christians. In fact, it's possible to be one of the most self-disciplined people and at the same time most self-centered people in all the world. Denying things to oneself can most certainly be for self-interest, self-benefit, and selfish purposes. And we would do well to remember, we live in an age consumed with the self. This is why we have dozens and dozens, in fact, hundreds of words that begin with the prefix self. Over 700. I will not read them all. I'll read a few. Self-motivation, self-esteem, self-absorption, self-consumption, self-pity, self-help, self-gratification, self-actualization, self-discovery, self-exaltation, self-conceit. And Jesus comes and says, I want, I want you to deny that self. See how radically countercultural and counterintuitive this truly is. This is the, the devil's great deception. You are most important. I think Jesus is saying exactly what Paul learns and later teaches to the church in Ephesus. You can put your thumb in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verse 22. Paul says, having believed in Jesus, put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. The Christian recognizes he has an old self. He has an old manner of life that used to define him completely. We might say we used to be under a different kind of management. And under this old management, we served the most important person in all the world, me. But a new management broke in for the Christian. In hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit applies that message to a person. And a new person, a new nature, a new love and desire is born within that person. Every Christian experiences this. This is the reality for every believer. What a glorious thing. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, Paul says. The old is gone, the new has come. Something new has happened. A new nature. There's a new self. And so Paul says, put off the old self, there in Ephesians 4, and put on the new self. It's just like a clothing, a jacket. Put off, take off the old, and you put on the new. It's ongoing. We do that work. And if you look at that passage right in between those two statements, put off the old, put on the new, is this phrase that Paul says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That, that's the principle governing your, your heart, your life. That's not something we do. That's actually something we are passive in participating in. The Holy Spirit is working to renew us, to renew you. He's at work. And our participation is putting off the old, 
mortifying the flesh and putting on the new. Ongoing. And it's a glorious journey of sanctification. But it's not just mere changes in behavior. It's not becoming a better you. It's death to an old person and life through the Holy Spirit. One author, a commentator, says this, self-denial is not so much giving up chocolates at Lent as it is giving up on ourselves as lords. It is the decision to let another lord rule one's life. As a Christian, there's a new lord. And so as we think about our life, our pleasures in life, our relationships in life, our time in life, our possessions, we want to ask ourselves, who's governing those things? Who's governing me? Who is Lord of my life? Lord of my heart and my will, my mind. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And then he says, and take up his cross. What is this cross to bear? Likely in the minds of the disciples, as they're hearing these words from their Lord, from the Christ, they may be thinking a literal, physical cross. Jesus had spoken very clearly, clearly to them about back in chapter 10 of the persecution that they would face, perhaps even death. We remember those words, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of, of the church. Uh, today, many people, the cross is simply a, a fashion accessory, uh, something that they, they wear around their neck. Perhaps it's a symbol of courage or heroism. For the Christian, bearing the cross, I think, is captured very well in Paul's words in Philippians 1.21. For to me to live is Christ. Whatever the cost, the path of Christ's word, uh, the path of Christ's rule and and kingship in my life, uh, the rule of, uh, and the value of his people, the church, that is the path for me. Frederick Bruner says, Jesus' words spell out the crucial motive in discipleship, risking one's life on the conviction, he says, even the dare, that Jesus is it. Investors uh, call it risk management. Uh, evaluating, uh, forecasting risks, potential threats in order to minimize impact and maximize opportunity and gain. And Jesus is saying, follow me and go all in in your life. All in. It's worth it. It's going to deliver. Not only in time to come, it'll deliver now. This is the fulfilled life. This is the satisfied life. Denying the self bearing the cross, and Jesus gives us reasons why to consider this cost, this costly discipleship. He identifies the reasons very clearly in verses 25, 26, and 27. They all start with a conjunction, the word for, the beginning of each of those verses. Here's the cost, here's why. Number one, follow me by denying yourself and bearing your cross, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's the paradox. 
giving up one's life to Christ results in finding life. And Jesus sets forth the options very plainly, very clearly. You can seek to save your life and thus lose it, or you can lose your life for Christ's sake and therefore find it. There's just two ways. It's very similar to what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. The broad way that leads to destruction or the narrow way that leads uh, to life. Notice Jesus is defining life here as something beyond this earthly, temporary, uh, short-lived life here on earth. This temporary body. One can seek to save their life by living for themselves, a kind of short-lived gain here. But in the end, its future, in the end, a great, unending, and irreparable loss is coming. Or a person can give up their will, come under the lordship of Christ, and then in the end, there's an immense and eternal gain. So losing one's life for Christ, it is hard and it is easy. It is costly and it is gracious. It is costly, it calls us to surrender everything. All my life. Thoughts, my will, my emotions, my time, my relationships. We sing those, those words, I surrender all, all to him I owe. But it is a life of grace. Because it is a life with the Lord Jesus Christ, with his care, with his mercy, with his forgiveness, with his attention. Freedom from self. Secondly, Jesus says, deny yourself, carry your cross, so that we would be saved from forfeiting and exchanging our soul for the fleeting pleasures of the world. Verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? A God's creation and God's world is full of good things and good things to enjoy. But that old self tends to exchange the worship of God and deep joy in God for worship of the creation. So that good things actually become bad things when they start to replace the true thing. Life in God. Worship of God. And they don't satisfy. Now there is a novel called Therapy by an author named David Lodge. And in this book, the main character has a counselor or therapist who directs the main character to make a list of all the good things in his life and then a list of all the bad things in his life. Under the good, this is what he wrote, a professionally successful, well-off, good health, stable marriage, kids successfully launched in adult life, nice house, great car, as many holidays as I want. And then under the bad column, he had just one thing, unhappy most of the time. By themselves, by themselves, the things in the world do not deliver. Our life, our soul was made for something more. 
We read in 1 John 3, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from God but from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And then three, consider the cost of life in Christ because the end is coming. Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father and repay each according to what he has done. Now this is not good works outweighing our bad works, bad deeds, a salvation by works. This is more like a flood at the end to prove whether a person's life is built on sinking sand or on the rock who is Jesus Christ. And Jesus is merely fast-forwarding the tape so that we can see the end, so that we can live now in light of the end. It was mentioned earlier, but many in our country, and in fact many people around the world, uh, recently have been reminded how fragile and passing and impermanent is this earthly life in the sudden death of Kobe Bryant. Uh, People die every day, every minute. But sometimes that reality is put right before people's eyes. And Jesus is putting it right before ours. There is an end. For the Son of Man is coming. So invest your life in me. I'm good. I am gracious. My way is life-giving. It, it costs, it demands my all, but it delivers above and beyond our grasp. This is the path of forgiveness. This is the path of help. This is the path of life. This is the path of joy. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, we know that our life rests upon the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet we hear these Weighty words that we are to deny ourselves and pick up our cross indeed daily and follow after you. We pray, O Lord, that your mercy would fuel us. That you would enable us and cause us to walk in such a way. Worthy of the calling placed upon us. We thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness for the forgiveness of sins, for our justification. And we pray, O Lord, that you would encourage our hearts and find in our hearts joy as we walk this path of sanctification, indeed mortifying the flesh, putting to death that which is earthly and of the flesh in us, discovering the joy of obedience. We, we pray, O oh Lord, as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, that you would meet with us, that we would feed upon what you have provided in this meal, as it represents what you have accomplished for us once and for all. And we pray all this through Christ our Lord. Amen.